The evidence is clear. We are in an unprecedented Earth emergency. This is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world. This is the challenge for all of humanity. This must stop now! Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Decolonize, decarbonize. We're going to rebel. Scientific realism has to win. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Scrub my skin with toxins. Scrub my skin with toxins. Fill my mouth with hating. Fill my mouth with hating. Trump my truth with yelling. Trump my truth with yelling. Dig my grave for profit. Dig my grave for profit. Stuff my nose with drowning. Stuff my nose with drowning. Coat my eyes with cruelty. Coat my eyes with cruelty. Fill my ears with money. Fill my ears with money. Wrap my face in plastic. Wrap my face in plastic. Tell me lies about climate change. Tell me lies about climate change. Tell me lies about unlimited consumption. Tell me lies about unlimited consumption. Tell me lies about climate change. The wonderful actor Mark Rylance reading a poem at a Writer's Rebel event in September, which was in Tufton Street. For me, it's a really special poem because I first heard it in the, our very first Writer's Rebel event, which was actually in Trafalgar Square, being read by A.L. Kennedy. So although Writer's Rebel has only been around for a year, it is already building its own history. I'm Jessica Townsend, and today I'm joined by novelist James Miller, who, like me, is a co-founder of Writers Rebel, and he's also his most recent book is Un American Activities. Hi, James. Hello, Jessica. This is the Extinction Rebellion podcast, but it's also a Writers Rebel takeover today. Some of the audience won't know what Writers Rebel is, so would you mind explaining that? So, Writers Rebel was formed, I suppose, in kind of. Uh, August, September, just last year. And it was basically a group of us writers who were frustrated at what we saw as the failure of writers to really meaningfully engage with the climate crisis. And we wanted to find a way to sort of mobilise the platforms certain writers have to sound the alarm about the crisis and also to do sort of something more as well in the sense that we need more than words, we needed deeds too. So we were trying to find a, a way in which we could engage writers in, in activism too. And why were we at Tufton Street? Well, it's a good question. Now, I mean, if you if you have a kind of an astute political nose, you will know all about Tufton Street. But it's an area that I think has kind of lain somewhat in the shadows and, and probably the majority of people don't know anything about it. But essentially it's the home of uh, a number of secretive think tanks and I put the word think in inverted commas because think tanks usually are places where very intelligent people try and find out alternative solutions to big problems but the think tanks uh, in Tufton Street well no one quite knows exactly who funds them but many of them are very much engaged in I suppose you would say kind of lobbying for corporate and big oil and fossil fuel interests lobbying the government on behalf of those kind of organizations and seeking to kind of shape and influence policy in ways that 
subvert the actual democratic and parliamentary process and that largely evade scrutiny. Mm. And I sense, in a sense, we were, there to, we were there to bring some scrutiny and some publicity to them. The thrilling challenge of this event was that not only were we organising for a big group of writers to come right into the heart of where we feel a lot of obscure and nefarious things happen, particularly a lot of climate denial, but also it was an action which meant we had to seize control of the road And we didn't want to alert the police to what we were doing in case they put a lot of police vans outside Tufton Street to kind of scupper what our plans were. So on the afternoon, around three o'clock, a group of XR people kind of ran into the street with some scaffolding poles and put up these amazing structures. For some reason, it seems a bit science fictiony to me, but actually they're quite simple structures. Well, XR has always been known for having a certain kind of design genius, and um, it seemed that what was revealed in this rebellion were these kind of remarkable tripods and other types of very fragile but kind of robust, easily assembled structures. I think slightly more elaborate but similar ones were used in the, um, the Printworks blockade as well that people are able to kind of smuggle in and assemble very, very quickly. And then once you have someone on top of that structure, that person is quite high. Unfortunately, our our police still have to abide by all sorts of health and safety rules. It means it's a lot harder for them to just drag someone off this high support. So once you have the structure down and you have the person on it, you actually have a very kind of handy little roadblock. That meant that we had the space with this elegant simplicity of just two rebels. Those poor people were up there for like four hours. It's a kind of dark secret of activism that people will often wear adult nappies. <laughs> There's no loo breaks. There's no loo breaks, that's for sure. The first of our speakers was George Mombio on magnificent form. I can't say how much this means to me. 20 years I've been trying to draw attention to what these people really are. In 20 years, I feel I've been banging my head against a brick wall. And now, I feel there are loads of us banging our heads against a brick wall. A lot of the really radical right policies that this government is implementing emerge from places like this. From 55 Tufton Street, from 57 Tufton Street, from Lord North Street, from Great Smith Street, from Great George Street. This nexus of organisations calling themselves think tanks, and which obediently the media also calls think tanks. But these are not think tanks, except in as much as they think about tanks. (laughs) They are lobby groups. They are no different to lobby groups like Bell Pottinger or Burson Marsteller, who represent devious destructive corporate and oligarchic interests, except for this. They do not reveal who funds them. This is a fundamental difference between them and people who come forward and say, uh, we're representing the tobacco industry, we're representing the oil industry, we're representing the mining industry, and on their behalf, because they've paid us to do so, we're going to put their case across. These people are doing exactly the same, but not revealing on whose behalf they are doing it. 
It is a fundamental principle of democracy that we should know who is speaking. And what is speaking here? of transparency and accountability, what is speaking here is the power of money. And the power of money is the greatest threat to democracy and the greatest threat to life on earth that we face. And then, their name for the power of money, a euphemism for the power of money, they call it the market. And they talk about the market as if it's a law of nature, as if it's just something in the air, something in the water, something indefinable, which governs the way that we act. But what they call the market, the market, this thing they say should effectively supplant democracy, this thing through which decisions should be made, is a forum within which wealth speaks. Where there is one dollar, one vote. And those with the dollars are those who get to make the decisions. And the very purpose of the existence of these organizations is to translate the demands of extreme wealth into justifications that people will accept. It is to reframe, it is to refine, it is to hone the arguments until we end up believing the very opposite of where our interests lie until we end up believing that what is good for billionaires is good for everyone. Whereas, what billionaires want is the extension of their own wealth and power at the expense of everyone and everything. And so, we are here to call them out. They are. We are here to say what they are. And what they are is the power of money in human form. The voice of money beamed to us on virtually every current affairs program that the BBC puts out. Without ever requiring that they identify themselves. Without ever requiring that they say who funds them. Or even to explain that they refuse to say who funded them. It's an extraordinary thing that these people are on literally every day reframing the world, recasting the world, telling us how the world works, and never are they challenged to say on whose behalf they speak. And while people like Carol Cadwallader and myself are now blacklisted by the BBC, I'm told by editors there that I'm on their extremist list, <laughs> these people, the true extremists in our midst, get to talk every day. The first of these organizations to be established was the Institute of Economic Affairs, that way. Set up by an industrial chicken farmer and a demob major. And they were fanatical disciples of the father of neoliberalism, Friedrich Hayek. And Hayek said, don't go into politics set up an infrastructure of persuasion 
which will then bear upon politics, which will then bear upon public imaginations and change the way the world works. And that is exactly what they did in setting up the Institute of Economic Affairs. And the major, Oliver Smedley, wrote to the chicken farmer, Anthony Fisher, to say, we must cover our tracks. We must not allow people to see that they're being led down a certain path. So we must be cagey about our intentions as far as the public is concerned. And what are those intentions? Those intentions are the things which are erroneously called Thatcherism or Reaganism. But Thatcher and Reagan were just conduits for this thing that lay behind them. Just as Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are conduits for this thing that lay behind them, this thing called neoliberalism. And neoliberalism tells us that the market is the means by which society should choose. The market, of course, being, as I say, the euphemism for the power of money. It tells us that public protections should be ripped down. It tells us that public welfare should be ripped down. It tells us that trade unions should be ripped down. It tells us that political organizing should be ripped down because this market, this power of money, will sort everything else, will sort everything out by means of its invisible hands. Well, this is the invisible money behind the invisible hand. Steps three and four. 
engage the powers, overthrow the powers. Thank you. George is a, a tremendous speaker, very eloquent, very passionate, very powerful. And it was it was very important to have him there because Tufton Street and the, the climate denying think tanks and the sort of circulation of dark money that surrounds it is, is an area that he's been researching extensively for many years. So having him as one of the opening speakers was a real way of bringing scrutiny and truth to the action and to the whole kind of event and crystallising and making it very kind of clear in everybody's mind why we were here and exactly why this location had been chosen. He was so fantastic, wasn't he, James? I remember him sort of gesturing to the building behind him and I was so glad that we had managed to get the space in front of the building. Uh, he also referred to the lobbyists as, um, well, as we've just heard, as money in human form. <laughs> All of it was just terrific. It really is a kind of an informal power network with quite sort of permeable boundaries between Parliament, politicians, big business. You know, the Global Warming Policy Foundation was, was sort of founded by Nigel Lawson, who, as we all know, used to be the Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer, etc., etc. So it's an informal power network that has an undue influence on Parliament, on the laws that are made and on the policies that are pursued. And there are individuals who sort of move from one of these spheres to another and allow, I guess, the promotion of certain interests and certain voices to be heard over and above others. And in this way, Tufton Street, I, I suppose, kind of compromises and challenges our, our democracy because decisions are made on behalf of these lobbying groups and there's no kind of clarity or transparency about it. And um, I think that where XR comes into it is that those people who are operating in such secrecy are the agents of climate denial within our system. So when I first joined XR, I felt like many people that if we that our main obstacles were psychological and that if we could get over our sort of grieving and kind of trauma about what was going on with the planet, that people would act. And I, be, I was quite bemused when that message seemed to be getting through, but nothing happened at a policy level. And I think a lot of people within XR went on the same kind of journey, which meant that we then had to try and find out exactly where the climate denial was coming from. Climate denialists have no right to undermine climate science because they are ludicrously unqualified to do so. They speak without the necessary expertise, so much so that I want to give you a little flavour of climate denialists and their academic backgrounds. We're now listening to the voice of Jay Griffiths. At the Global Warming Policy Foundation, we have its founders, Nigel Lawson, whose academic expertise is politics, philosophy and economics, not climate science. We have Benny Pizer, who is a sports anthropologist. Other denialists include James Dellingpole, whose climate science qualifications are simply a degree in English language and literature. <laughs> Richard A. North is a specialist in public sector food poisoning surveillance. <laughs> Christopher Booker, a history degree, Lord Monckton, classics with a diploma in media studies. Andrew Montford, chemistry and then chartered accountancy. Jay Griffith is a wonderful writer. She's particularly well known for the book Wild, but... 
Um, she's quite a champion of XR. She was arrested in the first rebellion, and, and we've published on our blog her, her defence statement from, from that trial. And it's one of the most kind of eloquent and beautiful defence statements we've kind of ever come across, really, a real classic of ecological writing and a remarkable kind of call to action. And then we have Matt Ridley, whose academic qualifications giving him the right to critique climate science. His academic qualifications is this. He has a doctorate in sexual selection in pheasants. <laughs> so these are the voices which should never have been listened to. And this is the voice of someone who cannot speak. She is an endling. That word, endling, is to me the saddest word in the English language. It means the very last individual of a species before it goes extinct. This is a letter I wrote to an endling. Dear Essa, your name, Essa, means the only one in human language, the lonely one. After your last heartbeat, the world will be gone forever. It's not, people think, an important one. It's only yours, but your only world. After your last flight, a freedom will be lost forever. It's not, people think, an important freedom, only yours, but your only one. After your last song, a category of music will be silenced forever. Not, people think, an important one, only yours, but your only song, and the only one you ever wanted to hear sung back to you. For while you live, you can sing your female laughing thrush call all you like, and no male will ever answer you, and you will never know why. You're a nervous bird. In the photograph I have of you, you look frightened. Your eyes are an orange circle with a black center, and you don't like being in the eye line of your keepers. You are easily stressed and would rather be hidden in deep foliage, tucked in a thicket of forests. You have never wanted to call attention to yourself except for a mate, but now you have the cachet of true tragedy. Your kind, the rufous-fronted laughing thrush, subspecies Slamatensis, is named as the world's next most likely known extinction. You, exactly you, Essa, one single individual bird of the last. Your death will mark its extinction. You, Essa, the lonely one, as the last individual of your kind are an endling. This is what extinction sounds like. The silencing of song that should have been forever yours. Forever yours, Jane. I found that so moving, the idea of an endling 
and she spoke so movingly about it. Hers was a very interesting speech, I think, because she started off quite sarcastically about all the people involved in Tufton Street and then spun on a sixpence and ended up with that profound covering of what an endling is. Our next speaker is the author of five novels and two collections of essays. She was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature in 2002 and has won multiple literary awards. She is currently a tenured professor of fiction at New York University and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Her name is Zadie Smith. We were incredibly lucky that one of our speakers was Zadie Smith, a very famous and much beloved writer, but also quite a publicity shy writer. And, and so to realise just how kind of passionate and concerned she was about this event, that she was willing to be there in the street under the police helicopters speaking about this issue, words of, of incredible kind of profundity and truth really, really helped make the event. Um, uh, when I first was asked to do this, I, I thought I was going to read from an essay I wrote six years ago about the climate, an essay I've come to think of as pretty naive. It was about climate emotion and climate grief, irrespective of political position. I wanted to know, for example, what the policemen behind me, even if the subject is incredibly boring to them in the abstract, how they felt, I don't know, about a hedgehog, the idea of never seeing a hedgehog anymore, or never seeing those insects that used to wipe off your windscreens when you drove through the summer, those kind of things. Climate grief, climate emotion, or what children beyond or before politics Think about never seeing those Dickensian snowy days they're always reading about in school. I wondered about that. And I, I thought of those as sincere emotions, and I thought even the opposite emotions, denial and anger, were sincere in their own way, product of a genuine fear, naive. So I want to read you just two paragraphs of that, what they're saying, and then speak to you for a little. This is from the essay. Although many harsh words are said about the childlike response of the public to the coming emergency, the response doesn't seem to me very surprising. It's hard to keep apocalypse consistently in mind, especially if you want to get out of bed in the morning. What's missing from the account is how much of our reaction is emotional. If it weren't, the whole landscape of debate would be different. We can easily imagine, for example, a world in which the deniers were not deniers at all, but simple ruthless pragmatists, the kind of people who say, well, I understand very well what's coming, but I'm not concerned with my grandchildren, I'm concerned with myself, my shareholders, and the Chinese competition. And there are indeed a few who say this, but not as many as it might be reasonable to expect. Another response that seem natural might align a deep religious feeling with environmental concern. For those who consider the land a beauteous gift of the Lord, should surely, rationally, be among the most keen to protect it. And there are a few of those knocking around too, but again, not half as many as I would have assumed. Instead, the evidence is to be believed or denied, as if the scientific papers are so many Lutheran creeds pinned to the door. But I don't think we've made matters of science into questions of belief out of sheer stupidity. Belief usually has an emotional component. It's desire, disguised. Of course, on the part of our leaders, much of the politicisation is cynical, bad faith, economically motivated. But down here on the ground, 
The desire for innocence is what's driving us. For both sides are full of guilt, full of self-disgust. What Martin Amis once called species shame. And we project it outwards. This is what fuels the petty fury of our debates, even in the midst of crisis. I'm going to stop there. As I mentioned, that essay was written back in 2014, back when it was still just about possible to believe that our collective inaction in the face of climate change was at least in part emotional and or psychological. The news being so bad, it might be natural to consider that some people would refuse to face it. But now we know better. Now we know that the outsized, unruly emotions that surround the scientific subject of climate change are fueled by something far more calculated and external than species shame. They're not organic, natural, or unavoidable, but rather feelings manufactured, targeted, organized, and paid for, largely by all companies and other vested economic interests who are prepared to sacrifice your long-term future for their short-term profit. Now we know that there really are people, some of whom we work on this very street, whose business it is to make science look like opinion, who aim to transform genuine feelings of climate grief and guilt into defended ignorance and positive denial. This is no longer, if it ever was, a question of personal morality. This is a structural question of corrupt politics, of lobbying at the highest level of our government. It involves the economic exploitation of the greatest existential challenge the human race has ever known, the survival of the planet. The fate of this planet cannot be decided by a few well-enumerated men and women in the shadowy offices on this discreetly powerful street. This planet belongs to the people. More accurately, we belong to it. Without it, even Tufton Street and its hubristic think tanks are done for. But of course, think tank is a misnomer. No real thinking is done on this street. Propaganda is not thought. are well-educated. I know, I went to college with some of them. And they know very well the difference. There's a lot more money in propaganda. They are not ashamed of themselves yet. That task will fall to their grandchildren as it fell to the descendants of the tobacco lobbyists. In the meantime, the real solutions to the real problems of climate change can only come out of the climate movement. Ideally, with the full support of everybody, whose life depends on their work, which is every single one of us. Thank you. There were many things that really struck me about Zadie's performance. Firstly, you can actually hear in her, in her voice a kind of a quaver of emotion and I think kind of anxiety and, and sort of just concern that, that she has to be there saying these words. But also because she's such a she's such an eloquent writer and I think a writer who is so in tuned and able to express not only her individual feelings but how our kind of external environment and kind of forces of power and structures of oppression shape and, and condition those feelings as well. It 
it really sort of showed to me, I think, the power that, that an imaginative writer can kind of bring to these events where they're able to straddle the personal and the political, the individual and the particular and the general and the social. It's just absolutely wonderful reading. Just as a small thing, I loved her line, propaganda is not thought. <laughs> That's one of the things I have taken away from the event as a whole. This is the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I'm Jessica Townsend and I have with me today novelist James Miller. We're both part of the Writers Rebel team and we're talking about the September action at the Rebellion. The evening was co-hosted by Mark Rylance and Juliet Stevenson who did us an absolutely stonking job. We're so grateful to them. Writers, we need you more than ever. There are two ways of knowing the world, I think, through science but through storytelling too. And any environmental movement needs both. And now we're going to give you a flavour of some of the other writers who spoke on that night on Tufton Street's doorstep. This is a short poem called To a Monarch Butterfly. You who go through the day like a winged tiger, burning as you fly, Tell me what supernatural life is painted on your wings, so that after this life I may see you in my night. I would like to think that we here are a nice little apocalypse on Tufton Street, uh, etymologically apocalypse meaning unveiling, and one of the things I'm concerned about is that you who have stayed here in the rain, apart from the people wearing fluorescent jackets, are very, very committed to this and you listen and you understand and you see things that other people don't see. And I'm interested in the moment of revealing. And this is about the moment of revealing when a child sees something wonderful in the world uh, isn't quite as independently wonderful as they thought it is. Small pink pot of magic. Small white wand for dips. Take a big breath, mommy. Purse your lips. Purse your lips. Blow the bubbles bigger. Blow them all around. Pop and pop and pop them. Never let them touch the ground. Look close and then look closer. How beautiful they are. Just like, just like, I don't know what they're like. Blow the bubbles bigger. Blow them all around. Pop and pop and pop them. Never let them touch the ground. Rainbows twirl in every bubble, just like, just like. Rainbows twirl in every bubble, just like, just like. Petrol swirling in a puddle, just like, just like. Rainbows twirling in every bubble, just like. Just like petrol twirling in a puddle. There's a thing if you work by the river every day that you can see when the tide doesn't know whether it's coming in or going out. Have you seen that? Yeah. And people in Shakespeare's day used to talk about it as a time you could drop a feather in the Thames and it would neither go out to the sea or go into the hills. I'm sure you feel like I do every day. What kind of story should I involve myself in? What plays? What films? 
are appropriate for this time? What job is appropriate for this time? It's a time when the feather's right in the middle, isn't it? It's, we don't know which way it's going. Um, great stories have to have some moment like that where people get confused or nothing changes. I think even at a cellular level, probably the little cell feels very confused before it splits into two and then becomes a larger one. Why didn't we save ourselves when we had the chance? You know, that question quite literally haunts me. It is the most important question of our time. Why is it that we seem to be content to be the species that spends all its time monitoring its own extinction rather than taking the steps necessary to avoid it? Now, many reasons have been suggested. The power and vested interests of the fossil fuel companies who are increasingly not simply lobbying government, but being given senior roles within it? Or is it that people are just too busy trying to get by, trying to cope with the latest obscenity from a government intent on making the poorest and most vulnerable pay the highest price for an economic crisis not of their making? Or is it that we are bombarded by thousands of advertisements telling us to go out and do more consuming, to spend money we don't have on things we don't need to make impressions that don't last? But more than any of these, I think what stops us from acting is the fact that we rarely have the courage to emotionally connect with the reality of what we're doing to this one beautiful and precious earth. Because when we have the courage to really feel the reality of what we're doing, such feelings of powerlessness that can arise can be difficult to escape. And that's why we need your help. We need you to paint the positive pictures of how the world could be to tell us the vivid and compelling stories that show us that when people come together and act, there is always hope. We need you to remind us that human beings are endlessly caring and creative and innovative. And if we choose to, we can set our minds to anything. We despair when we have no stories to describe the present and shape the future. Because political failure is at heart a failure of imagination. But with your help, with the help of the writers and the painters and the poets, we can rekindle our imaginations and we can and we will rediscover the power to act. Our words do not cover up and deny. Our words reveal. We do not write to break up the people. We write to bring the people together, to cohere in a time of fragmentation, to remember in a time of forgetting. And no matter how strong the fiction the dominant empire might have at its command, we have the mountains and the rivers. We have all the hiding places and we have the greatest tool that human beings have always fostered which is imagination. So in that medley, we heard our fellow writers, rebel writers, Chloe Arregis and Toby Litt. We also had a little more from Mark Rylance and also from Caroline Lucas. And then at the very end, within us, we have the mountains and the forests and the power of imagination. We had some really fiery kind of prophetic words from Charlotte Ducan of the Dark Mountain Project. Yeah, in this podcast, we can only really give you a flavour of the evening because there are so many amazing 
writers that we haven't been able to name check or give any um, sections of. Among them, Paul Hilder was on Magnificent Form, Carmen Khalil, Josh Apinese and uh, his partner Devora, Rupert Reed, Rachel Edwards. There, there are just too many people um, to mention. If you do want to find out what happened on the entire night, there is still on Facebook the live stream in which every speaker is given in their full glory. At the end of the evening, we had hoped to do a reading from Margaret Atwood, but unfortunately we had the plug pulled on us a little bit earlier, so you stepped into the breach. Uh, Yes, I gave, I guess, what could be called a vote of thanks while... Uh, yourself, Jessica, and one or two others uh, left a slightly more permanent mark uh, on the doors of Tufton Street. <laughs> two or three people came up with chalk spray paint. As James was standing thanking people, we snuck behind and tried to spray lies, lies, lies on the pillar behind. (laughs) I was nearest to the police, and they really got hold of me quite quickly. And so I did this sort of ugly splurge on the pillar, which Gail Bradbrook said looked like a penis. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, Claire and Anna were really quickly spraying lies, 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 lies uh, over the pillars. But I was marched off. Rupert Reed. Uh, the philosopher, he poured blood on the steps of Tufton Street uh, and he was arrested in short order as well. James, when did you become aware of what was happening? I mean, the, the, the nature of a lot of XR actions is that they're all actually quite sort of slow. I mean, the uh, the stenciling moment was was an unusually kind of fast moment for an XR action because typically, you know, we like to sit down and glue ourselves or sort of stick ourselves to things or place ourselves high up on things. And so the whole process of removing the individual is is kind of rather sort of time-consuming sort of spectacle. But by drawing attention to the spectacle and perhaps the absurdity of what of what the person is being arrested for, it, it helps kind of highlight, I, I think, the kind of yawning gap between the gravity of the situation that we face and the failure of the powers that be to kind of act appropriately. This was our last Writers' Rebel event. We have another one coming up, James. So our next event... It's called On the Brink, and it's being held on November the 30th, which is Lost Species Day. Uh, it's like a remembrance event um, for the millions of species that stand on the brink of, of extinction. And we have a whole host of formidable cultural figures reading work, uh, I suppose, in memory and tribute to these species. We're very thrilled to have Margaret Atwood and Ben Ockrey reading work. We also have Homero Arrigis. We have the model Lily Cole. We have the um, great... American Indian novelist Amitav Ghosh. We have the actress Emma Thompson and a host of other writers and activists as well, including Bianca Jagger and Maya Rose Craig, otherwise known as Bird Girl, will be the host for this event. The subtle changes that we all need to make in our lives are in tiny moments, aren't they? They're in the consciousness that I find in novels and in writers and in poems. This is the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I'm Jessica Townsend. And I'm James Miller. And if you want to check out the Jay Griffiths piece that 
James was uh, talking about earlier, it is amazing, and it's on the Writers Rebel website, which is www.writersrebel.com. There's also an amazing speech by Esther Stanford Cosey that we put out about a week ago. So please check out the website. There you can subscribe to our newsletter, and you'll also find a link so you can get tickets for the Remembrance of Lost Species event that is happening at the end of November. Thank you for listening. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at XR Rebel. <laughs> James says the Twitter excellently. <laughs> 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 <laughs>